0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Joel Schwartz, and he just published a book February 22nd, 2022, literally three days ago. Title of the book is Bone Deep, Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. And this book also has an audio book. It already has 18 five star reviews within the last three days. And it's hard to get, I guess, in the the St. Louis area. So so, uh, Joel Schwartz has told me. Mr. Schwartz has spent 30 years exclusively as a criminal defense lawyer in the St. Louis region as a principal in Rosenblum, Schwartz, and Fry, one of the area's leading law firms. He has handled nearly every type of criminal case in state and federal circuit courts and appellate courts in Missouri, Illinois, Michigan, and Iowa, and has represented clients in California, Colorado, Texas, Arizona, and Nebraska. His recognized expertise in criminal law has also led to serving as a lecturer at legal educational institutions and a legal commentator for a number of news organizations. He earned his law degree from the University of Texas School of Law. He has been consistently selected to the annual super lawyers list throughout his career and is a member of the top 100 trial lawyers for the American Trial Lawyers Association and is a lifetime member of the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. He has appeared on Dateline NBC, 60 Minutes, CBS Morning News, CNN, Fox News, and countless local television news affiliates. And Joel Schwartz has also written this book. There's a co author. His name is Charles Bosworth. He's author of six true crime books with millions of books in print. But uh, again, the book we're going to talk about today is titled Bone Deep Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case. So, Joel J. Schwartz, welcome to the show. Thanks for agreeing to the interview.
1: Uh, Thank you, William. And I appreciate the introduction.
0: And Uh, You have a very long bracket, 30 years of experience in criminal law. Can you kind of talk about what got you into law and your career and how you got involved with this particular case? Interestingly
1: enough, when I graduated law school, I was somewhat disenchanted with practicing law, having clerked in some of the bigger silk stocking firms down in Texas. And frankly speaking, it bored the hell out of me. It just wasn't something that I could see myself doing despite the large numbers of money they would throw at you for these significant uh, entry-level contracts. So I decided to take whatever talent I did have and go to Los Angeles to become an actor. I was out there for a few years after law school, waiting tables, having auditions, and there was a writer's strike. So I was simply after law school, waiting tables. The writer's strike Persisted and persisted, and I decided to take a trip home to St. Louis just to kind of see my family for about a week or two. And while I was home, I ran into a good friend of mine who happened to be in the middle of a murder trial, who invited me to tag along with him and watch the trial. I went and watched, and I thought, "Wow, God, this is really interesting. It's something I could sink my teeth into. I think it's something I could do well at." I, I interviewed with the public defender's office that day they hired me on the spot. And I said, hold on, let me, uh, let me, I still live in Los Angeles. Let me think about it for at least a few days and I will call you. I decided to go ahead and take the job, give it one year and see if I enjoyed doing it. uh, And it was working for me. Well, here I am 33 years later and still doing it and still enjoying it. Wow.
0: So you, and all in the St. Louis area, correct? Yeah, I'm based in the St. Louis
1: area. We do stuff all over Missouri. Uh, Federally, my partners and I do stuff all over the country, but primarily the mid-market region here in St. Louis.
0: And then you got involved in this Betsy Faria murder case. Somebody just pretty much called you looking for attorney services, correct? Well, sort of. When I left the public
1: defender's office, I briefly worked at another law firm as their criminal defense specialist. And they had a staff who, uh, one of the women there was a woman by the name of Mary Young. I didn't know it at the time, but Mary Young would end up playing a pivotal role in my life and Russ's life. It would be, uh, this, well, actually January 2012, approximately 10 o'clock at night, I got a call from this woman, Mary Young. She reminded me who she was. And at that point in time, I had no idea who she was. And she told me that her cousin, Russ Faria, had been charged with murder of his wife. And I had been familiar with the case itself because it had been the news for several nights. Um, and she swore he didn't do it, he's innocent. I hear that all the time. Uh, I did a little bit of research into it and uh, saw, based on what had been reporting, that it appeared just at the outset that he probably was guilty for this. It was reported that there was blood all over him. There were witnesses. So I didn't know what to expect. Anyway, I told Miss Young to come see me in the morning and she painted a very different picture of everything I'd heard in the media, which is generally the case. After I spoke to Miss Young, I told her I would go see Russ and I went to see him that, that
0: afternoon. And we had quite an interesting conversation. And what was that What What did that conversation entail? Well,
1: what it consisted of is he explained to me what he had done and where he had been throughout the course of the evening. Now, let me kind of start it out here. It, it's as if any one of your listeners, and it's really hard to imagine putting yourself in this situation, but had you asked Russ Faria this 10 years ago or over 10 years ago, he would have said, of course, not a chance. What I tell people is you can always say, and mean, I will never commit a crime. But what you cannot do, unfortunately, and I've learned this, is never say I won't be charged with a crime, because that's simply out of your hands. This one was to the nth degree. And what I mean by that is, let's say one of your listeners is working their eight-hour job, nine-hour job. They then go out with friends after work. They're with their friends 30 miles away from home. They leave their friends, they go home, and they come into the scene that Russ Faria saw when he got home, which was his wife, Betsy, brutalized. She had been stabbed 50-something times. She was laying there dead on his living room floor. Russ had been with his friends. His cell site confirmed that. He had four four solid alibi witnesses. They took him into custody. They questioned him for approximately two days prior to releasing him. So he was up almost a solid 48 hours during the course of this questioning. Had Russ had done the smart thing and realized that he was a suspect, he would have called an attorney. And had it been me, I would have told him, Russ, you need to keep your mouth shut. I do not want you to say anything to these detectives, and I will be there first thing in the morning. However, not realizing he was under any suspicion whatsoever because he knew he didn't do anything, he volunteered everything he possibly could in an attempt to what the officers referred to as uncover the truth of what happened to Betsy, all unbeknownst to him, they, in their minds, knew he was responsible for this. So what Russ told them is his whereabouts. He told them that he left his house. He told him how and when he traveled to the alibi witnesses' home. Um, He told them all the names and the individuals and how to contact the people who he was with. He told them where he was when he left there and the stops that he made. What the police were able to do during the course of this investigation, as incomprehensible as this may seem, was to confirm every single thing that Russ had told them. In other words, he told them the first thing he did after leaving home was stop at a gas station to get a little bit of gas. They went to the gas station, then they got a video of him hopping out of his car, pumping in $10 of gas and continuing on his way. He told them that he went to a place to buy cigarettes. That's where he finds, he buys cartons, and he buys them cheaper than anywhere else. They went to that place, they got him on video. They went by a place that his wife had told him to stop to pick up dog food and toilet paper. They got a receipt from that place and the owner identified the picture of Russ as having someone who had been there the evening prior. And uh, He stopped at a, a quick trip, got some lemonade right before he was at his friend's house. Interestingly enough, he was captured on video at all these places wearing the exact same clothing that he was arrested in approximately four hours later. More interestingly is they were able to do an emergency subpoena for his cell phone and cell site information, which also confirmed his travel to and from his friend's home. Additionally, while he was still in custody, they went and they spoke to the four friends that he was with as to his whereabouts and his actions during the course of the time that he claimed that he was with them. All four of them independently and separately confirmed exactly what had occurred and that Russ had been there all evening. Finally, during the course of their search, they found an Arby's receipt crumpled up in the backseat of his car, along with a couple Arby's roast beef, empty wrapping paper. And it told the exact same time that he had, it told the time that he had left his friend's house and stopped at Arby's to get a couple of sandwiches prior to heading for home. Once he told me this story I like to go into these things with at least um, a modicum of believability, as well as, uh, let's call it at least a little bit of suspicion as far as what my client's going to tell me. The story Russ told me, had it been untrue, was so easily disraveled or unraveled, if it were a lie, that I, I thought, you know what, this guy just doesn't seem to play the part of a guy who just brutalized his wife. He certainly is telling me a story that I'm going to know whether or not it's true within a matter of 48 hours or 24 hours, to which I was able to confirm all the information. Interestingly enough, he told me about a woman who had dropped off his wife, um, and it was somewhat unexpected because he was scheduled to pick up his wife on the way home, but this woman sort of insisted on bringing her home. I didn't think much of it at the time because certainly he didn't think much of it at the time. But the woman we're talking about came to me eventually, and her name is Pam Hop. Pam played what you could call the most integral role in this case, or any case that I had ever seen.
0: Right, it's really remarkable. And initially, when he found his wife, he thought she had committed suicide, right? So he was under the impression that she might have done that to herself for at least a couple days, Russ, Russ, right? Russ, had no
1: idea of anyone in this world who would harm what I've learned. I've now learned that his wife, she was as friendly as can be, and nobody could think of her having any animo- any enemies nor animosity toward her whatsoever. Um, the call to 911 was, I could quote almost verbatim, I just got home and my wife killed herself. So the police took that as Russ Faria trying to be a little too smart and trying to deflect or distract from the truth that he killed his wife. What they failed to do was step back and analyze the situation and understand why he said that. And the reasons he said it were relatively obvious. First thing is he was in shock. She was dead. Um, There was a large pool of blood. Her tongue was hanging out and it was clear she was gone by the time he got home. So that's what he walked into at approximately 9.45 on a Tuesday night. More importantly, Betsy had been recently diagnosed with terminal metastatic breast cancer and the doctor had only given her a short time to live. She was somewhat despondent over this. You take that combined with the fact that she had previously attempted suicide. She had also been stopped by a traffic officer at one point in time, just about a year prior and was involuntarily hospitalized for observation for a weekend because she told that officer she felt like killing herself. That, coupled with the fact that Ross that Russ walked in, saw what he saw, saw uh, marks across her forearms, a deep, deep wound on her wrist, as well as a knife in her neck, led him to believe that Betsy committed suicide. What he didn't fathom and didn't understand is that there were another 50 wounds throughout her body, most of which were hidden by the dark clothing that she was wearing. Uh, the police never, ever stepped back to analyze that, nor did the prosecutor and say, wait a minute, why would he have said suicide? What they did is viewed everything through their myopic lens saying, if it doesn't further our cause, we need to ignore it. It is inexplicable in an investigation such as this. And 10 years later, almost to the day, uh, I just simply can't explain it. Uh, and right. I don't know that i will ever be able to.
0: And there were other things that were strange. Like the police showed up very rapidly within like 15 minutes, right? But her, she had already was cold. Like she wasn't, uh, she hadn't just died within the last half an hour, right?
1: William, we are just touching the tip of the iceberg. As they
0: say, it gets gets curiouser and
1: curiouser. So when the first responders showed up, well, let me backtrack for a moment. Okay, Betsy had been dropped off and we knew the time because they, when I say they, Betsy and Pam Hupp called Pam Hupp's husband, Mark, to let them know that she was arriving at Betsy's house. That was at 7.04 p.m. We also knew that at 7 p.m. Betsy's daughter had contacted her and said, Mom, I'm going to the cell phone store to change my plan, but I'm on your uh, your card and your plan, so they're going to call you for permission, so promise me you'll answer her phone, your phone, which Betsy Faria did promise to do. So we know they arrived at 7:04 p.m. The daughter called her at 7:19, 7:21 and 7:29. All three and all three calls were unanswered. There was also then a call, which we found out later from Pam Hupp's phone at 7:27 to Betsy's Faria's phone and that one unanswered. What we knew once the first responders arrived is the EMS and the fire uh, the first fireman that went in stated in their police reports that her body was cooling, the blood was drying and pooling, and her body was stiff, indicating to anybody who plays any attention to true crime that she had been dead for quite some time, probably in the neighborhood of over two hours for those things to occur, which would put the death probably about the time that her daughter was attempting to call her. Where I get into the Curiouser and Curiouser is... The police went to Pam Hupp's home the next morning in an attempt to talk to Pam because she was her best friend or so they were led to believe. And they wanted to know what was Betsy's condition when you left, tell us what you know about Rush Faria. Pam took this opportunity, led them down the primrose, primrose path where I can't understand and explain to any of your listeners and it goes into in much, much greater detail in the book is the statement that Pam gave to the police. What they found out in an initial three and a half half hour interview was this. The first thing that Pam Hupp told the police is, I never went in the house. Well, it's not that that was a lie that changed over the course of time. That's a lie that changed over the course of moments. She immediately changed her story and said, well, I did go in, but I simply went into the foyer. That then changed to, well, I went into the living room, and then I went into the kitchen to help her turn off the lights, ultimately becoming, I went into the bedroom as well. And those were all places that evidence claimed to have been located. So we've got a little method to Pam Hubbs' madness if we read deeper into the things she's saying, specifically the lies she's telling. One lie that stood out was they asked her if they could see her phone. And she showed them her phone, and they saw that call that I just spoke of at 727, And they said, well, why did you call Betsy at 727? And she immediately told them, I called her to let her know I was home safe because she lived about 35 minutes away. Well, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if you get there at 704 and you go inside the house and you spend some time with her and then you call her at 727, you're not home safe. You're certainly not home unless you're flying a rocket ship. So the officers on tape questioned her about it. And she said, well, what I meant was I was almost home, which over the course of this interview evolved into I was home free, meaning I knew where I was at this major artery. Ultimately, I subpoenaed her cell site information to find out she was nowhere near any of the places she claimed she was either at or still in the house, I would venture a guess, with Betsy Faria. And the reason we don't know exactly where she was is because this was a semi-rural area. And cell site, if you're in an urban area, cell site can precisely put exactly where you are, right down to the foot almost. In the urban area, it's more like a pie slice. So I could put Pam Hupp still within that pie slice within the vicinity of Betsy's home when she claimed that she was home safe. So as a listener or a reader, would go, okay, well, that makes sense. Why the heck wouldn't they look at Pam Hop? I can't answer that question. I would hope maybe somebody who can read Bone Deep would answer that question for me because there is another question that I call the $150,000 question. In that initial interview, she volunteered and she knew it would be found out. Betsy Faria had a life insurance policy that had been in her husband's name since they had been married approximately 10, 11 years ago. This was a Tuesday that Betsy had been brutally murdered. The Friday before she inexplicably changed the beneficiary of her life insurance policy to guess who that's right. Pam We don't know why she did it. All we know is that they were at a library together. And a librarian said, there were two women here that matched those descriptions, and I watched them sign something. I don't know what it was. All I can tell you is the blonde woman, who happened to be Pam, seemed to be in control of everything. Given the factors that I've just stated, amongst many, many, many others, it is inexplicable as to why there was not some detective who said, okay, let's hold on let's step back. Let's take a look at this thing because this guy, even though he tried to lie to us about suicide, he's got an ironclad alibi. We checked his cell site. There is not an expert that I questioned on the stand who denied the fact that whoever did this would have blood all over them. There was not a speck of blood on Russ Faria, with the exception of some slippers that suspiciously were found in the back recesses of his closet that did in fact have blood on them. And I can get into that down the road. Or you can read Bone Deep and there are pictures of the slippers and you'll see what I'm talking about as to why I always believed that Russ Faria was framed. So it's
0: really incredible. And she had this woman Pam Huff had a background in life insurance, right? Like once the research kind of went in, like isn't this strange that she's the beneficiary when she has been selling or been involved in doing paperwork for life insurance for the last decade. It's like that. It's more than suspicious to <laughs> yeah.
1: me. It's enlightening and it's enlightening in the form and the fashion that they did it. Somebody who does that, who's concerned about it, doesn't do it at the library. You go to the life insurance office, you get the notary and you have an actual witness to the documentation. This piece of paper did have Betsy's signature as far as we can tell, but Betsy had told her close friends of hers that she was meeting Pam and she was meeting Pam for reasons that she didn't tell anybody, but she was uncomfortable about it and didn't want to go see Pam. So knowing Pam as I now do, I know that there was some form of coercion if she got Betsy to sign it. She threatened her to sign it because this was only four days before, and I know she knew she had to carry out this murder quickly, or the family and Russ would find out that the beneficiary had been changed, Um, or Betsy would find out that the Betsy that the beneficiary had been changed and realized that Pam had forged her signature. Right. I don't know what happened, and I don't know why she signed it to this day.
0: And she had been busted for forging signatures specifically, right in the past. She, that had, she been, had, yes, in a, to something.
1: a degree. I couldn't prove that she had been busted, but she had been fired, or her bosses had been fired because form. Uh, Forms had been forged in life insurance, and that is, as we can all as we all know, that's a massive no-no in something like the life insurance field. So yeah. we knew we knew she knew what she was doing, and uh, she was. But she with it here,
0: yeah, and she was very manipulative. So she told the story that Russ and his wife were going to get divorced, and he was aggressive and things that the cops really believed. It was her statements that led the police to bolster their focus upon Russ, right? Sort
1: of. The police continued to feed her. And as they fed her little morsels of information, she would take one step further and realize, okay, they believe this. For example, they said, tell us about Russ Faria. She goes, well, I barely know him. I've only met him a couple of times. Well, what's he like? Well, I don't really know. Seems nice enough to me. That was at the beginning of of the interview. By the end of the interview, he was rude. He was crude. They didn't want to socialize him. He was mean to Betsy. Uh, and he, uh, he was publicly, uh, he would publicly humiliate her. And then she would throw in these things like, well, I don't know if he ever hit her. She never told me about it. I didn't see the marks on her. And then the police would say, well, do you think he hit her? And she he, she would say things like, well, yeah, I think so. Ultimately, her story changed to from, I barely know Russ, I've only met him a couple of times, to allegations that he was going to kill her, cut her up into pieces, and bury her in the backyard. What's so unfathomable about this is the police were almost as culpable as she was in creating this tale that she spun to get it from point A to point B. you um, your reading will find out, and I, I hate yeah. to, to, to jump ahead, but There is so much and so many facets to the story Pam told, but part of it is the police became her enablers.
0: Right. It was incredible because, uh, let's see, he was arrested January 4th, 2012, right? And those two, sergeant and detective, put a pistol to his head, like really brutal. They thought he was really it. And then they knew the trial was coming up. I think it started, the set was June 26, 2012. And there's a remarkable segment in your book where the policeman is helping her with her story at trial. It's off the charts. So, ah, it was just an unbelievable thing where this guy McCarrick is telling, helping to make sure that this uh, these charges stick, right? Anyone who reads the book, who's talked to me,
1: who's listened to the audible, they say they want to take their headset off or take the book and slam it against the wall when they come to these parts. The officer is feeding her information, telling her how to testify, telling her what she should do to make things look better at trial. Ultimately, when we go to trial the following November, she does these things. She testifies as such. Now, all those things that I've told you, jury didn't hear about that's where this story became so blown up. It became national news because it was such a miscarriage of justice. The jury was unable to hear about Pam Huff being the insurance beneficiary. They were unable to hear about the lies she told from the fact that she lied about where she was when she made the call to Betsy, that I could show the cell site information as to where she was, that I could name her as a suspect. That's where this thing got so murky. The... Way I like to look at the judicial system and like to hope that it works is there are stop gaps contained within the system. In the course of an investigation, a detective, one of them, somebody, and there were so many involved, is gonna step back and say, folks, I don't think he did it. Or, you know what, maybe I do think he did it, but our responsibility as these officers is to do a complete and thorough investigation. And we need to look at this woman because she had motive, she had opportunity, she's told, continued to tell us lies. Well, that never happened. For example, they never once confirmed what Pam Hupp was wearing that night when she was with Betsy. To this day, it hasn't been done. They went to Pam's house. They did ask her what she was wearing, and she gave them some clothes and told them. That was never confirmed. They never confirmed the condition she was in or when she arrived home with her husband. They did go to interview her husband, but during the course of the interview, they sat them together. They began to ask her questions. And by the third question, literally question number three, Pam interjected and Pam started talking about bad things Russ has done, about kicking the dog and about throwing water on his daughter and things of that nature that home had no relevance in the investigation whatsoever. Things like that in and of themselves should have clued the police into who is this woman and why is she trying to convince us that Russ Faria is guilty? And again, those things never happened.
0: Uh, but you, you sensed, I mean, you have a sig uh, there with your son, even your son sensed something was wrong, but nobody else did. And you had to depose her right before the trial. Can you talk? Yeah, about Yeah. Well,
1: again, I got the opportunity to pose her and, and Pam is the master of lies. She cannot answer a question. And again, and I'll give you an example in just a moment, but uh, you had just alluded to my son. When I got the discovery in this case. It was multitudes. It was a mound of paperwork. And I read through it and I finished reading it. And as I was reading it and going through it, I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to go meet this prosecutor. I did not know her and I'm going to talk to her. And this is done. This case will be dismissed because it's clear. Not only he didn't do it, he couldn't have done it. So my son was in seventh grade and I do go into this deeper in the book, but he said, dad, can I help? And it was cute. Not he had never sat down and reviewed a police report with me. I thought he'd last about 30 seconds, but he sat there and he read and he read and he read. And after about 30 minutes or so, he looked up at me and he said, Dad, I know who did it. And I said, okay, who? And he said, it was that woman, Pam Hop." And I said, good job, son. I, I looked at him and I thought to myself, the seventh grade boy read this, their reports, knows exactly what I know yet there is not a police officer in this entire investigation who has said anything about Pam Up being responsible. Nevertheless, I knew I would go talk to the prosecutor. Her name was Leah Askey. We'd sit down, cooler heads would prevail, and that's the second stopgap in the system. This case will be dismissed. Well, she was convinced it was Russ Faria. And I said, how, when? And that became the major error in this investigation they did it exactly the opposite as every police officer is taught and every investigator is taught and every "who done it" goes to they decided they knew who did it they simply needed to figure out how and when and they never could and they never did and had i gotten a fair trial russ faria never would have gotten convicted in this case what happened was we had an inexperienced judge who had no idea what she was doing and decided to keep this murder trial, and she had never tried a criminal case. So we got to the trial, and the judge precluded me from cross-examining Pam Hupp about any of her, what they call prior inconsistent statements. She precluded me from going into the phone calls, the cell site, the insurance. All of these things are merely the tip of the iceberg as to what I was precluded from going into. With all that said, The state still could not prove that Russ Faria could have done this. So we got through the evidence. We got to the closing argument. And I have never seen anything like this in my life. The prosecutor got up and spun a tale that I I still to this day can't believe. In her tale, she accused the four alibi witnesses of being complicit with Russ Faria in a deep-seated, long-standing plot to kill Betsy Faria. It was inexplicable, it was unethical. Unfortunately, it was effective. Russ Faria was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to life without parole, meaning he's never eligible, he dies in prison. I vowed at that point in time to do everything I possibly could to make sure that Russ got out of prison and that the Betsy's death was, Betsy had received justice. Little did I know at the time, this Pam Hupp was not this suburban housewife who managed to kill her friend Betsy. It went much, much deeper than that. And again, all these things go into detail in the book. But let's just say Pam was the last person with at least two other people, one whom she inherited money from, specifically her mother. And there was another time after this, I was getting effectively Uh, I was getting through to the U.S. attorney, and they were taking a new look at this case, and Pam Hupp was being investigated, and she went and she killed again in an attempt to frame Russ Faria again, and once again, I had to take Russ Faria to the police to deal with that to show that he couldn't have possibly done this.
0: Um, That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, it's so amazing that they didn't key into all this stuff, and you said that even in her interview with the police, she's making inconsistent statements and things that are contradictory, like super suspicious. And she like showed up at the funeral of her friend and like made a scene. There was just so many suspicious things that happened that should have keyed off, keyed into, somebody should have keyed into it.
1: Yeah, and I, I don't understand. And I do my best to lay it out there for the readers in Bone Deep, and they can come up with their own conclusions. What I did do is I looked into the relationship between the police and the prosecutor between the prosecutor and Pam Hupp. And I couldn't come up with, I I would hear rumor, I would hear innuendo, but there was nothing I could come up that had any real teeth to it to indicate that there was a relationship that existed in order to justify their actions and they're ignoring an investigation of Pam Hupp. Unfortunately, they never did an appropriate investigation of Pam Hupp. Um, and And again, it's unfortunate, but you simply can't go back The first 24 hours, 48 hours, in the course of a homicide is by far the most important. And they messed that up, and they couldn't have screwed it up any larger than they did. And it was all laid out there for them on the silver platter. It was like a, no offense to fifth graders, but it was like a fifth grader planned a murder and then got away with it with the ineffectiveness of these detectives. The frightening thing about it is what what I led off with is Russ was a worker. He worked. He went out with his wife on weekends. He spent one night a week with his friends, and that was kind of his life. It's just frightening to think that you could go home and experience one of the most grisly things you'd ever seen to somebody who you truly loved and not even be allowed to grieve, be taken into custody, and then charged with being the one who did it when it was just so obvious on its face that he had nothing to do with this.
0: Right. It's, it's amazing. And you there was like you talk about this one journalist, Chris Hayes from Fox, who kind of keyed into it. So these other people say, hey, there's something suspicious going on, except the people who really should, which is the judge, the prosecutor and the, the police. It's really incredible. She said all kinds of weird stuff. Like she said, one, uh, she came out and told you I did not kill Betsy. The other was like, I sold him that, too. And amazingly, he's still alive. Like, so you state that she knew that there were suspicions that she was it and she was trying to deflect a so super manipulative. Yeah.
1: Well, she was accusing me of being the one who suspected her. Well, she was correct. At least in that regard, she said two very suspicious things. One was regarding her husband, that he has a large insurance policy and amazingly he's still alive. She said that during the course of a deposition, she also said in a taped video recorded interview with this, one of the detectives is the detective said, you know, Schwartz is going to try and show that you're the one behind killing Betsy. And she said, that's ridiculous. I mean, not to be morbid or anything, but if I was going to kill someone, I would, why would I do that to somebody who might be stronger than me when my mom has $500,000 in life insurance, which I get when she dies. Um, Just off, really
0: off base, but yeah, but like it shows that she's thinking about that. Like,
1: well, yeah, we, we didn't know it at the time, but Her mom did die falling from a third floor balcony of her apartment, of her uh, senior residence. And what we do know is Pam was the last one with her. And Pam lied about her manner of death during the course of my trial. Venture a guess that Pam had something significant to do with that death. She hasn't been charged with it. And I certainly can't jump to the conclusion that she did. However, that's now two people who she inherited from, who she was the last person who died in a violent matter. I think you put two and two together. It's real easy to come up with four here.
0: Wow, it's incredible. It's an incredible book. I mean, it's, it's, not, I've never come across, I've written, a, I've read a lot of true crime books. And this one, it just, you just want to scream at some of these guys, like, can't you figure this out? So, but well, I, uh, where's the, where, anything you'd like to add or anything I missed before we wrap it up? I and mean, where's the best place to get bone deep?
1: Well, I can't answer that anymore. Uh, around here, I've, I've been told that the bookstores are running out of it. Uh, I was told yesterday that Amazon, believe it or not, is starting to run low. I would say I don't think they run low of the Audible or the ebook, so anyone can order those. Um, and it is flying off the shelves. And I am thrilled with the reviews. And I'm thrilled that people are enjoying it. And most importantly, there is a cautionary tale here. People, jurors, investigators, law school students, they need to understand that this stuff still happens. I like to think of myself, and I've had a heck of a career, as a qualified advocate on behalf of my clients. And I know I am because the results speak for themselves. I represented Russ and I did the best I could, yet he still got convicted of murder in the first degree. What unfolds in Bone Deep really is something, and it's reflected in the title. I untangled this case, and that's not my job. I'm not the one who needed to do that. It was just laid on a silver platter. So I hope everyone reads it. I hope they enjoy it. And if anyone wants to contact me and discuss it, I can be reached at joeljschwartz.com, and I will respond to anybody who wants to discuss it, I'm, and I'm happy to do it.
0: Excellent. And again, the title of the book is Bone Deep Untangling the Betsy Faria Murder Case, just published February 22nd, 2022. There is an audio book and it has 18 five star reviews right now on Amazon in the last three days. So, congratulations, Joel. And thank you so much for your time.
1: Oh, thank you so much, We Appreciate you having me. All
0: right. Take care. Stay there. Stay there.